We are going to begin today a series of four lessons on something that is a source of some confusion among people in the religious world in our day and time. As you notice in your order of worship, we're going to talk today about the thought of the idea of the Holy Spirit. Next Lord's Day, we will discuss the theme of miracles and is it reasonable to believe in miracles. And then the next Lord's Day, we will talk about divine healing and miracles. And then the last Sunday in February, we'll talk about the thought or the idea of speaking in tongues. Our text this morning comes from John chapter 16 and verse 7. And Jesus is in the closing days of His public ministry. And here is what He says. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. You see, when Jesus told the disciples that He was going away, there's no doubt that their hearts were filled with sad forebodings about His departure. I can almost imagine the feelings of despair that would sweep over them. Because, you see, the visible Jesus had been the symbol of their security. In all of the teaching, Jesus had been present. When all the miracles had been performed, Jesus was there. In the face of the opposition that they faced, He was always there. We sang a moment ago about leaning on the everlasting arms. These disciples, these apostles, they had come to lean on Jesus Christ. And a large part of their assurance was the constant personal presence of Jesus. That's brought about very forcefully, forcefully in John chapter 17, or John chapter 11 rather, when you read about the death of Lazarus. At one point after Lazarus had died, it was four days later, Mary comes to Jesus and in John 11 and verse 32, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. Mary felt certain that the personal presence of Jesus would have made all of the difference. And now suddenly, Jesus says to the disciples that He's going to soon be leaving them. And this certainly brought misgivings and fears to their hearts. Now, looking at it today, in the 21st century, from our vantage point, we can see the wisdom of it. Jesus is about to establish a universal kingdom. Jesus is establishing a kingdom that's not going to be tied just to one little country. As long as Jesus inhabited a human body, He's going to be present only to a very few. And He's going to be absent from a great many. Now, as He's going away, 
His kingdom is not going to be confined to this little country. His kingdom is going to reach to all parts of the world. And in the course of time, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is going to reach millions of people to do that. Jesus had to abandon His physical limitations of this earth and go back to heaven. That way Jesus could be universally present wherever His disciples, you and I, might need Him. The Spirit presence of Jesus had to take the place of His sense presence. Use your sanctified imagination. And think about what it would be like today if Jesus was still trying to live on this earth in bodily form. Imagine if Jesus was still alive, still in bodily form, and Jesus was in Jerusalem today. Well, around Jesus there would be an inner circle of a very few people. But the rest of us, you and I, we would be very far away from Jesus. We'd be separated by continents and a wide ocean. So you see, it's so much better that Jesus left the earth. Because now He reigns in heaven as a spirit. And reigning in heaven as a spirit, Jesus is available to all Christians. He's available in every corner of the earth at every instant, day or night. We can feel His presence. And we can surely know that Jesus is with each and every one of us whenever and wherever we need Him. Through Jesus, we can go to our Father in prayer at any moment that we feel the need to call on God. Jesus understood all of this. And understanding it, Jesus went back to heaven. And there He reigns as a spirit being. And in His place, He sent the Holy Spirit to live among us. He sent the Holy Spirit to carry on the work of the Godhead. Now, I want us to think about that for a few moments. That is one of the most important subjects in Christianity. The Old Testament refers to the Holy Spirit some 88 times. The New Testament refers to it some 264 times. You can go through and count it if you'd like. Different names are used. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's just the Spirit. Sometimes He's called the Comforter or the Advocate. But whatever the name, these hundreds of references are to the third part of the Godhead. And I guess that the place to begin is who, or as some would say, what is the Holy Spirit. He's a spiritual being. He is a personality like God and like Jesus Christ. Let me read from John chapter 14 and verses 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, 
for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Did you notice something in that passage? Did you notice the personal pronouns in that passage? The he and the him. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is a personality like God and like Jesus Christ. Now, in John chapter 14 and verse 26, here's what it says there. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now let's read John chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, let's turn over to the last chapter of the book of Luke. And let's read from Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. Jesus says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Jesus talks about to them and He tells them to tarry in Jerusalem until they are endued with power from on high. And then that's going to come to pass in Acts chapter 1. And if you look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, "...being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence." Folks, all of these passages indicate that the Holy Spirit is a personality. Now, at this point, let me say just one other word about the Godhead. That is a term that is used only occasionally in the New Testament. If I'm not mistaken, it's a term that's actually used some three times. And it indicates that the Godhead is made up of three separate personalities. And those three separate personalities are God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Each one of them is a part of the one divine nature or the one substance. You remember in Matthew 28, Jesus is going away and He gives the great commission to the apostles. And He says, Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the world. That passage in Matthew is indicative of the fact that all three of these, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are all three a part of the Godhead. And then there's another passage that links these same three names in succession to show they are divine. 
It's from the pen of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but is the same God which worketh all in all. Notice what Paul says there. The same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. There's another passage that's the final sentence of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And this is something that's in, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. These three separate, these three distinct personalities are one in the sense of being divinity. They make up the Godhead. Well, what exactly does the Holy Spirit do? Well, let's go back to the 16th chapter of John where our text was this morning. And I'm going to begin with verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he's come, He'll reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you shall no more see me. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. If you listen carefully to the reading of that passage of Scripture, you'll notice something. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will tell the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Even more specially, he will guide you into all truth. In John fifteen twenty six, that we read just a moment ago, it says, He shall bear witness of me. That's the way Jesus put it. And then in chapter 14 and verse 26, again from the lips of Jesus, He shall bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. The Holy Spirit then is to teach and to guide. You recall over in Matthew chapter 10, an incident that happened there in the early ministry of Jesus. The disciples were ready to go out and to preach. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, 
for it shall be given unto you in that same hour what you shall speak. Now listen. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. The Holy Spirit was to guide those who were speaking for God. That was always true of the Old Testament prophets that God selected. It was true of the apostles in the New Testament period also. There are a great many passages that emphasize the familiar or the particular theme that the Holy Spirit guided the men who were selected to be God's special spokespersons. If you'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 13, here's what Paul would write. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The earlier part of that second chapter tells about certain things that were taught of God. And then we begin the reading that we just read. Now, Let's take what we just read from Paul and put it in our own words. Paul is simply saying that the things that he preached and taught and the things that the other apostles preached and taught were the things that they wrote down in these inspired books that make up the Bible. And they were really speaking and teaching the teachings of the Holy Spirit. There's some other related readings and teachings. There's Romans chapter 8 and, and verse 14 where Paul writes, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are they which are the sons of God. Second Peter 1 and verse 21. I'll not read it, but it's a passage that shows in a special way that the Bible writings are from the Holy Spirit of God. So what is the work of the Holy Spirit? When Jesus left the earth to go back to the Father in heaven, the Spirit came to guide man into all truth. The Spirit came and guided the apostles in what they spoke and in what they wrote, and we have it here in the Bible. The Bible is the instrument or the tool the Holy Spirit is using in telling us, me and you today, the will of God. Now, there are three manifestations or measures of the Holy Spirit. And the first of these is the baptismal measure. You remember we were reading a moment ago from the Gospel according to Luke. And the disciples were to 
wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. We read Acts 1, 4, and 5. It said, You shall baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Well, if you look at and read the events of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the day when the church began, it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Later that day, Peter preached a sermon. And here's one of the things that he said in that sermon in verse 33. Therefore, talking about Jesus, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He hath shed forth this which you shall now see and hear. Jesus has gone back to heaven and He's poured forth the Holy Spirit upon the apostles there on the day of Pentecost. The baptismal measure, that which overwhelmed and covered these disciples, is known only one other time in the New Testament. And you find that in Acts chapter 10. Peter has gone there to the household of Cornelius. He's gone to preach Jesus there. He's preaching to the first of the Gentiles that will be brought into the family of God, and be brought to Jesus. And in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 44, you find these words. While Peter spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all of them that heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. For they heard them speak with tongues, and magnify God. And then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? When Peter returned to Jerusalem, here's what he told the others there in Acts chapter 11 and verse 15. Peter says, As I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now write this down. It's on the final exam. Those two times are the only times we know of the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. It was poured out on Pentecost. It was poured out on the household of Cornelius. It came directly from God, and it covered and overwhelmed those few selected people. It never happened again, and it does not happen now. Then there's another measure of the Holy Spirit that's the miracle-working measure. It came through the laying on of the apostles' hands. It enabled a person whom they had laid their hands on to work miracles. In Acts chapter 8, we read the story of Philip as he was preaching the gospel in Samaria. 
People believed, they accepted the gospel, and they were baptized, but they did not receive the miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 14, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet it was, He was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now listen. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. There are other examples in the New Testament of people receiving the power to work miracles through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Acts 19, verses 2 through 6 is another example of this. In 2 Timothy 1, and verse 6, Paul tells of the gift that Timothy had through the laying on of Paul's own hands. But, just as the baptismal measure, the first measure, ended with the New Testament apostolic time, so also did the miracle working power end during the time immediately following the apostles. When the last apostle, the last man that could pass on this miracle working power had died, and when the last man whom an apostle had laid his hands upon died, this miracle-working power of the Spirit through men was extinct. You and I will never know the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. And you and I will never know the miracle-working measure of the Holy Spirit. Those things had a purpose. The purpose of those gifts was to authenticate the gospel in the first century. It was to prove that those men who were speaking and preaching and teaching were doing so with the approval of God. It was before we had the New Testament. We do not need to work miracles now. We have the Scriptures to authenticate our message. At this point you're saying, okay, we've been here all this time. Do we have any connection with the Holy Spirit today? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. We have the ordinary, the normal measure of the Holy Spirit. And that is the measure for all Christians. I want you to look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 32. And we are His witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Spirit, you listening, whom God has given to them that obey Him. The normal measure of the Holy Spirit does not enable us to work miracles, but is the wonderful possession of everyone who comes in obedience to Jesus Christ. Everyone who obeys Him in all of His commandments, including baptism. Look at, if you would, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now let's see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not of your own? You see, folks, the Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian. And it dwells in us exactly the same way that Christ dwells in us. You recall a passage over in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Colossae. It's Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of us just as God dwells in each of us. If you would read with me from First Corinthians, or rather from Second Corinthians chapter six and verse sixteen. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Just as God dwells in us, just as Christ dwells in us, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. How? The Holy Spirit dwells in us as the gospel of Christ we receive from the Holy Spirit. That's to say that as the Word dwells in us, and as the Word works in us, the Spirit dwells in us. Now that's not to say that merely the written Word dwelling in us and us having Scripture memorized is the Spirit dwelling with us. It's not. Stay with me on this. I know this has been a little more lengthy than I normally am, but this is an important subject. Stay with me. You see, if it was merely the written Word dwelling in us was the Spirit, that would mean the man or the woman that memorized the most Scriptures or the man or the woman that read the Bible the most would have the most of the Holy Spirit. Remember we said a few moments ago that the Spirit was a tool? That would be to confuse a man's tool with the man himself. The Holy Spirit uses the written Word of God as His tool. It means that as you and I meditate upon God's Word, as we understand the teachings of God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, as we keep our hearts and our lives open to those teachings, as we drink deeply the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Have you not heard it said about someone, you know, he or she is a very spiritual person? That simply means that God's Word 
which the Holy Spirit brings, the Bible, has had a great effect upon that individual, and that individual has grown in spirit. It means that that individual, the Holy Spirit dwells in them to a great degree. That person that's a spiritual person, they don't work miracles. They've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. But in the ordinary way that the Holy Spirit works through God's Word, it has come into that heart and that life and taken hold of the way that person lives. We've known other people of whom it could be said they were spiritual. They became Christians. But then as Paul said, they grieved the Spirit. Or they, in other words, have quenched the Spirit. They haven't read their Bibles much. They haven't meditated on the deep things of God's Word. They haven't lived a life close to the Lord. So the Holy Spirit only has a very small hold on their hearts. But the Holy Spirit today comes into our lives exclusively through the Word of God. It does not speak to us directly as it did to Peter or Paul or the others. That was no long ago. And that was a different measure, a different kind of the Holy Spirit. It comes to us today in the 21st century through the reading, the study, the imbibing, the meditation of God's Word. And we need to strive diligently to use this more extensively and more effectively as we drink deeply of the things of God. To study God's Word until the Holy Spirit has a rightful place in our understanding and our lives. It provides us, through the written Word, everything we need to know of God and everything we need to know of Christ and His church. And we need to listen as He teaches. And we need to learn more of the Holy Spirit. And it's available to those who in obedience come to Jesus Christ. Repenting of things that are everything that's sin in their life. Confessing His name and being buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of past sin. That's when Christ comes into our lives. That's when we begin our journey with the Spirit. Have you done that? If not, I beg you to do it. Or did you do that and you quenched the Spirit and you need to come back home? The invitation is that of Jesus Christ as we stand and while we sing. Walk your